I'm going to try and do this thing with my gloves on. <laughs> Man, this, uh, this weather has taken me by surprise. And I know uh, Penny pointed out that in the middle of winter, we're going to be thankful for 40-degree weather. But uh, today, I wasn't ready. Uh, anyway, it is good to be here. It's good to be at a race. Couldn't be any happier about that. So with that, we'll get going and get done in time for uh, everybody to go racing. God, thanks a lot for this morning. Just thanks for uh, thanks for the weather. You've created all things, and, and some days we're happy about it, and some days we wish for something more. But at the end of it, when we stop and really count our blessings, we know that we're blessed, and we know that you love us. And what more could we ask for? So this morning, just be with us. Open the ears of our hearts. Uh, open my mouth to give the words to say that you would have me to say. Challenge us and draw us closer to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, so um, <clears throat> if you don't know what today is, other than Sunday, obviously, today is day number three of the movie Left Behind being in the theaters. I know you didn't know that because it hasn't really made that big of a splash, but Left Behind, this is the second time that they made a movie called Left Behind, and it's based on a book called Left Behind that was written in 1995 by Jerry uh, Jenkins, uh, Tom, Tom Le- I forgot their names already, but uh, anyway, these two guys got together, Jerry Jenkins and Tom LaHaye, they wrote this book called Left Behind, it was a big seller in 1995, and it talked about the end of time, when, uh, when Jesus returns and this thing called the rapture, and, uh, and uh, all the Christians on the face of the earth, they disappear, and uh, the book was a huge success, and so they followed it up with another book, and that was a success. They followed it up with another book, and then another one. And by 1999, they were working on book number five. And the authors together, they were at a conference, and one of them was quoted as saying, uh, the Y2K bug would probably trigger a global economic chaos in which the Antichrist would use to rise to power. Of course, as that date approached, they changed their minds on that. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, the Y2K bug, if you can remember back to 1999... There was a song by Prince, Party Like It's 1999, and we were all talking about the Y2, the Millennium Bug, the Y2K Bug, and computers at the time only had two-digit dates, and so in, in a computer, we would enter the date of 92 for 1992. Well, as time approached, we realized, hey, when these computers roll over and to say 00 for the year 2000, the computers are going to think it's 1900, and the end of the world is going to come. And, of course, we know that, uh, obviously, that didn't happen, but it, it, uh, there was widespread panic. I mean, generators were being sold out. People were buying uh, kerosene lanterns and stocking up on kerosene and uh, dry goods and water and all this crazy stuff. Whatever needed to be fixed in computers, it obviously got fixed. But there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of debate over what was going to happen, and there, was, there were a lot of predictions that the world was going to come to an end in, uh, in the year 2000. We're thankful that it didn't happen, and after the year 2000, the, uh, the Left Behind series went on to write 11 more books for a total of 16 books in all. The last one was written in 2007. 45 million copies of Left Behind were sold. Millions and millions of dollars are spent on this series. There was already a Left Behind movie one time. It was in the early 2000s with Kirk Cameron. It was honestly a little bit cheesy. And uh, this one that just came out this weekend with Nicolas Cage, big star power, Nicolas Cage. Uh, critics aren't really liking the movie. They said that it took 15 million dollars to produce this movie and uh the review that i said most that probably most of that money went into nicholas cage's pocket because we don't see it in the movie <laughs> don't let that keep you from seeing it if you want to see it i'll probably go see it myself because i'm interested the end of time what is that going to look like you know uh, ever since 
Ever since Jesus left this earth, we've been talking about the end of time. And uh, his followers have been looking forward to that return, been looking forward to the rapture. Did you know that the word rapture is never found in the Bible? The rapture refers to when Jesus comes back, and Paul explains what it is in his book to the church in Thessalonica. He, he explains that uh, the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry, with a shout. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us that are left behind that are alive, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord forever. That's what we have referred to as the rapture. The dead are going to rise, then we who are alive are going to rise up in the clouds. Ever since Jesus left this earth, we've been looking forward to that day. If you recall, in Acts chapter 1, Luke writes that when Jesus left this earth, that's how he left, was he ascended into the clouds. And then all of his disciples and all of his followers are standing around looking up because what else are you going to do? You see a guy lift from the ground and go up through the clouds, you're going to stand there and look. And Luke records that, that as they were looking into heaven, two men, of, two men in white robes said to them, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. And so for 2,000 years, we've been looking forward to that day. Matter of fact, if you read the New Testament, the, the letters that were written by Peter and John and Paul, all of them refer to the coming of the Lord. All three of those guys, as they write their letters, it's evident that they're looking forward to Jesus' return during their lifetime. The end of days, they thought they were living in the end times. And ever since that time, people have been saying, we're living in the end times. There have been multiple, there have been hundreds of predictions about when Jesus was going to come back and when the end of time was going to be upon us. And some of the more notable ones are uh, the year 1000 A.D. Year 1000 A.D., Christians were saying, well, Jesus is surely going to come back in the year 1000 A.D. Matter of fact, the Pope at the time, Pope Sylvester II, said Jesus is coming back in the year 1000. It caused riots and widespread um, pilgrimages from Europe to Jerusalem, and Jesus didn't come back. And so then Christians said, well, it must be 1033 AD, 1,000 years after the death of Jesus, and Jesus didn't come back. Martin Luther, who uh, spearheaded the Reformation, he said, uh, he said that the end of the world would occur no later than 1600, the year 1600. 1600 came and went, obviously, we're still here. Christopher Columbus you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and he found, a, and he found America. And later on, in 1501, he wrote a book of prophecies. In that book, he predicted that the end of the world would come in 1656. Didn't happen. Charles Taze Russell founded the Jehovah's Witness movement, and he predicted Jesus would return in 1914. Then he predicted it in 1915, 1918. And then his followers went on to predict several more dates, and still hasn't happened. 1981, Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, predicted the generation in 1948, the World War II generation would be the last generation, so the end of the world would be no later than 1981. Here we are. 1982, Pat Robertson predicted that the end of the world would come in 82. He wrote a book in 76, said the, the world's going to end in 1982. didn't happen. In 2000, or in... Uh, 1990, he wrote a book called The New Millennium, and he predicted the end of the world at April 29, 2007. And here we are. And of course, most recently, we saw that the Mayans forgot to number their calendar beyond December 21st, 2012. That was supposed to be the end of the world. It was last year. And here we are. So the end of the world, everybody for the last 2,000 years has said, we're living in the end times. So if we come today and we say, when is the end of the world going to be? Are we living in the end times? And we decide that the answer to that is, yes, we're living in the end times. How is that any different from anything that anybody else has ever thought for the last 2,000 years? It's context. Anytime you look at prophecy, you have to look at context. For example, 
as we talk about the end times, the end of the world, there's this book in the Bible called Revelation, and there's a lot of things in Revelation that don't make any sense. Matter of fact, we have no context for it. We can speculate. We can look at some things in Revelation, and that's what the Left Behind book series was written on, was a lot of speculation, and it was fiction. It wasn't prophecy. It wasn't uh, interpretation. It was fiction. But there's a lot of speculation as to what Revelation might be talking about. And Revelation chapter 9 says that at the end of time, there's going to be this plague of locusts that terrorize the earth. In the 1970s, a, a commentary was commenting on these and said, you know, the way that John describes these locusts, and you look at the description John gives, he says that they're wearing a crown of gold, they had hair like a woman's, teeth like a lion's, breastplates like iron, and they made a noise like chariots and horses rushing into battle. So in the 1970s, a, a commentator came out and said, you know, to the ancient John, John living in the ancient world, that's probably him seeing a modern-day helicopter. Well, that's speculation. That's not context. That's speculation. Because there's a lot of other things that John said about these uh, locusts, that they had the face like a man, they had a tail like a scorpion that they would sting people with, and they would only sting people that did not have the mark of God on their foreheads. What is that all about? I don't know, because I don't have context. But when you look at prophecy, you have to look at the context. So, for example, the Old Testament has 39 books in the Old Testament. They were all written by a bunch of different guys, all living in different times. They didn't know each other. They lived in different parts of the nation of Israel, and uh, they did not collaborate. And yet, all of these guys that wrote the Old Testament, they had predictions about a coming Messiah. Now, some of the things that they would say about this Messiah, people living in the time, they couldn't figure out what exactly does this mean. And so when you think about the things I'm going to read to you, think about context. If you lived 2,500 years ago and you heard this, how would you think about it? Isaiah says that a virgin would become pregnant and give birth to a son. Micah said that that ruler would be born in Bethlehem, but Hosea, a different guy, he says that God's son would be called out of Egypt. And then Isaiah says that a great light would shine in the region of Galilee after this special child is born. Without context, you say, what in the world is this guy in Bethlehem, Egypt, Galilee? A Messiah coming from where? A virgin? Well, we know in context that the Virgin Mary gave birth to a son named Jesus, God's son, is sent to this earth through, through uh, Mary, that there was a, a census given and that they had to go to Bethlehem. And the days had come due that she gave birth to a child in Bethlehem. At that time, Herod said, oh no, there's a king of the Jews. He's risen up. What? Well, let's kill all the babies two years and younger. Let's kill them in, in the region of Bethlehem. And so an angel comes and says, Joseph and Mary, you need to flee to Egypt. They go to Egypt. God calls his son out of Egypt because two years later an angel comes and says, Joseph, you can go back home. And where's home? Nazareth in the region of Galilee. A great light shines in Galilee as Jesus starts his ministry. In context, it all makes perfect sense. John records that at the end of Jesus' life as he's coming into Jerusalem, he comes in riding on a donkey. And people are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 800 years before that, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 118 that they will chant, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Zechariah says that he will be humble. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble riding on a donkey, even a donkey's colt, and Jesus rides in on a donkey, fulfilling prophecies that were written at different times by different guys in different areas. In context, it all makes sense. This one really gets me. Jesus, when at the end of his life, he's crucified. He's crucified on the center cross. We know that he's between two thieves. And the thieves are talking to him, and Jesus says, you know, you'll be with me in paradise tonight to the one. The other one is, uh, is still a wicked one. And at the end of Jesus, once he, once he is dead, and he's brought down off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, says, bury him in my personal tomb. I'll give my tomb to Jesus. Isaiah, they made his grave with the wicked and a rich man in his death. 
how do you figure that one out? But in context, it makes perfect sense. We understand exactly what Isaiah was writing about. And so, if you were a scribe living in, in uh, 2,500 years ago or so, you look at all these different things, you hear about a conquering king, and you hear about a suffering servant, most scribes were thinking, well, a lot of scribes actually were thinking, well, maybe we're looking for two messiahs. Or some of them even said, we're looking for three different messiahs. But in context of history, we understand it was Jesus. Jesus fulfilled over 300 different prophecies that were written in the Old Testament. Fulfilled them perfectly. And yet, without the context of history, we'd still be scratching our heads. So when it comes to end times prophecy, there's a lot of things that we don't understand, that we're not going to know the answer to. We can speculate, but today I want to look at context. So are we living in the end of times? I want to draw your attention to the book of Daniel. Daniel uh, was, was a guy who wrote, lived about 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And he had a, a lot of different visions, and he had a lot of different prophecies that were written in his book. And uh, he recorded one time that he had a, uh, an angel came and visited him. He told him, write these things down. He talked about uh, Daniel, after this time, there are going to be three kings that rise up, and after that, there's going to be a fourth king, and he's going to be a great king. He's going, to be, he's going to be a richer king than the three that were before him. We saw three kings rise up in Persia, and then we saw Xerxes, and you guys are familiar with Xerxes because you watched the movie 300 a few years ago, and that was Xerxes, the king of Persia. Xerxes rises up. The angel says he's going to go against the great king from Greece. Xerxes took on Alexander the Great, a great king from Greece. Alexander the Great defeated Xerxes, defeated Persia, and then Alexander the Great, his kingdom spread just like, the, just like Daniel said it would happen. But Daniel said that this great king of Greece would die unexpectedly. He would not leave an heir to his kingdom. It would be split into four different ways, which is exactly what happened with Alexander the Great and the kingdom of Greece. I say all of that to say that everything that Daniel said would happen, happened exactly the way that he said it would happen. And in the context of history, we can see it with clarity. Now, Daniel had a lot to say about future events at the end of time that we don't have context for, but there's one thing that he did say that gives us a lot of context. Daniel 12, verse 4, says, At the end of time, people will be running to and fro, and knowledge will increase. At the end of time, people are going to be busier than ever before, and knowledge will increase. You and I today hold knowledge in the palm of our hand in the form of a smartphone, an iPhone, whatever you have. Knowledge has so greatly increased. Based on that one verse alone, are we living in the end times? I would give the answer yes, but there's got to be something more. There's got to be something a little bit more specific to that. So I want to look at a contemporary of Daniel. His name is Ezekiel. He was also a prophet, lived about 500 years ago at the time of Daniel. And Ezekiel, he writes down a lot of different things that sometimes we can't figure out what they are, but a lot of what Ezekiel said, we have context for. Listen to this. Ezekiel chapter 7, 37, Ezekiel writes, he says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out to a valley, and he set me down in it, and it was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many upon the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered him, O Lord God, you alone know. The valley of bones. Now, when I first read this uh, passage years and years ago, I thought, man, that is cool. Valley of bones. I just had Hollywood images going through me. And later on, Ezekiel writes that there's a there's a rattling of bones. They all come together. I'm like, oh man, that's cool. That's like Pirates of the Caribbean. But in the context, context of history, I sobered up. In the context of history, if you remember back to your high school history lessons, learning about World War II and learning about a guy named Adolf Hitler who rose to power in Germany in the 30s and founded the Nazi Party, one of Adolf's, um, one of his... The thing that we remember Adolf Hitler for is the Aryan nation, that there would be a superior race 
And to him, he wanted to exterminate all the inferior races, none of which were more inferior than the Jews. So Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party killed thousands and thousands and millions of Jews. Matter of fact, over six million Jews lost their lives during the Holocaust. And there were concentration camps, and hundreds of thousands of Jews would be killed at a time. And mass graves were dug, and bodies were just thrown in there. And, it, and I watched Schindler's List, and I know that that's a Hollywood movie, but I was so disturbed by it that I only watched it once. And those, those images haunt me even to this day. And you look at the pictures from the Holocaust, and a valley of bones is no longer like a cool thing. A valley of bones is like, that's for real. The mass graves that were dug up, a valley of bones. And Ezekiel, we believe, is looking into the future, seeing a valley of bones. And God says, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, Oh Lord God, only you know. And the Lord said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And so I prophesied, and as I prophesied, there was a sound of rattling, and the bones came together. And Ezekiel says, The bones came together, and they grew tendons, and they grew sinews, and they grew skin, and they became bodies, and they were laying there, and they were dead. And, and God says, Breathe life into them. Say, say to these bones, Live. And so he did. He said, uh, Live. And life came to these, and these bones came to life. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. God goes on, he says, they thought they were dead, they thought they were done, and thus says the Lord God, I will bring you into the land of Israel, I will place you in your own land. In context, we understand exactly what that is, because in 1930s and the 1940s, there was no land of Israel. Matter of fact, there hadn't been a land of Israel for over 1,800 years. And that has to do with a different prophecy that Jesus spoke of. When he talks about the ransacking of Jerusalem, run for your lives, and in 70 AD, the Romans indeed sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, every Jew had to disperse to the four corners of the globe, and that was called the Dysphoria, that's where all the Jews fled to all the different uh, countries of the world, and in, uh, obviously in the 1940s, Hitler decides to exterminate all the Jews, he rounds them up throughout Europe, kills them all, and God says to Ezekiel, says, I'm going to make these guys live again. I'm going to bring them back to their own land. May 1st of 1949, by resolution of the United Nations, Israel became a nation again. They had land. They had their own country back again. Hadn't been for over 1,800 years there had not been in Israel. And God says, I'll make these things live again. I'll bring, I will place you in your own land. You see, 2,500 years ago, Ezekiel predicted this. Ezekiel wrote this down. When Ezekiel wrote it, there was a land of Israel. Without context, you couldn't figure out what he's saying. And then all of a sudden, there was no Israel. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there was no Israel. But in our grandparents' lifetime, this prophecy actually came true. So are we living in the end of time? Well, this is a prophecy because the, that, that relates directly to the end of time because directly after this, in Ezekiel 38, starts talking about some things that haven't happened yet. And this is pretty amazing because for so many years, nobody could figure out what was going on. And now as we dig into Ezekiel chapter 38, there's some things that I don't know about for sure, but there are also some things that I can assign context to and it'll kind of make your eyebrows raise. Ezekiel chapter 38 starts out, Ezekiel says that there's going to be a war with Israel. And he lists a whole bunch of countries that, are going to go to, that at the end of time are going to go to war with Israel. And some of those countries that he lists are uh, guys like Magog and Meshach, Tubal and Gomer and places I can't understand, I can't pronounce them. But in modern day translations, once we understand what the ancient world was like, we see the maps of the ancient world, we can assign who these guys are today. 
For example, Magog, that refers to Russia. And Russia, we know today, has been selling arms to every country in the Middle East that hates Israel. There's another country uh, that comes up, Turkey, who mostly has been at peace with Israel for the last uh, several years. But in 2010, there was a minor skirmish with Turkey over the Gaza flotilla. And tensions are currently running high with Turkey. Uh, there's also mentioned Afghanistan and Pakistan, which we personally know are terrorist hideouts. And who hates America, or I'm sorry, who do the terrorists hate more than America? Israel. Looking at Iran, whose uh, stated goal in life is to eradicate Israel, and uh, they're work currently working on a nuclear program, which uh, one of our politicians in the last election said, what difference does it make if they get uh, nuclear weapons or not? I think it makes a lot of difference, but if you're looking at end times history, I guess Joe Biden was right, it doesn't make a difference because God's purposes are always going to be accomplished. Libya is mentioned. Libya currently lacks a government, and they're run by rebel groups. Ethiopia, Sudan, and Somalia are also mentioned in this passage. They're all full of civil war and genocide. What's interesting is as Ezekiel 38 lists the countries that are going to come against Israel in a war that we're referring to as the Ezekiel 38 war, there are some countries that aren't listed. You'll be familiar with the countries that aren't listed because they're Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. Not listed in this war with Israel. Yet when you read a prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah says at the end of time, Damascus will no longer be a city but a heap of ruins. Damascus is the capital of Syria. There's going to come a time when there is no more Damascus. These countries that aren't listed in Ezekiel 38, they are listed in Psalm 83. In Psalm 83, there's a contingent of Middle East countries that come up against Israel and they get destroyed. All those countries that aren't listed. Egypt, Jordan, Syria... Iraq, all those countries apparently go to war with Israel in a Psalm 83 war and they get destroyed. Now I'm speculating here because I don't have context to assign to it, but I am reading the Bible here and, and I'm looking at what the countries are, what our modern day countries are, and now I want to assign some context. And so at the end of time, Ezekiel says this Russian Iraq or uh, Russian Iran Federation, they're going to go to against a war, uh, a land that is restored from war. And I, I'm speculating here. That if there is a Psalm 83 war and, the, and half the Middle East gets wiped out, Israel's probably going to be at rest. Thinking, okay, we kind of got this under control. Speculation, though, let's get into context. It says, you're going to go against a land that's restored from war, a land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste for over 1,800 years. Finally, the people are gathered back together in Israel. He says, you will advance, coming on like a storm. You will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land without walls doesn't sound too crazy. A land without walls, villages without walls. You know in the ancient times, and especially in the ancient Middle East, if you build a village, you build a wall around it because, it, number one, it identified the, the boundaries of the land. Number two, it's first protection and security. Walls are still very common in the Middle East today. I've been to Egypt before, and driving through the countryside, I said, man, why are there all these stone walls around these places. And it was explained to me that those walls are there because it identifies property barriers. If you do not have a wall, it is the law of the land. Possession is ten-tenths of the law. <laughs> if you don't have a wall around your land and somebody decides to squat on your property, after a period of time, they own that property. But if you have a wall around it, you own that property. You can kick them out. And that's how the Middle East operates. So walls are very important. Perry Noble is a pastor in South Carolina who I've borrowed some of this message from. And he's taking trips to Israel. And he said on his last trip to Israel, he was uh, talking with his tour guide, Ari. And Ari re was, was talking about Ezekiel chapter 38, about these walls. He says, you know, Perry, 
the modern day English translations translate this as walls, but that's not what it says in the Hebrew context. He says, look right here in the Hebrew context. And Perry's like, I can't read Hebrew. He says, well, I'll tell you what it says. There, it says wall, singular. Now, when everybody translates that, that doesn't make any sense because how are you going to have a wall? It's always a walls, plural. He says, but now, and since the year 2000, a wall makes a lot of sense when you read this passage. Because in the year 2000, Israel on the West Bank, is, if you listen to any of the news at all, the West Bank is always at war. The Palestinians have been sending suicide bombers over to, to Israel for, for, for forever, basically. And in the year 2000, Israel got sick and tired of getting bombed through the West Bank, and so they built a wall. And since we, knowledge has increased, and we all have knowledge in the palm of our hand, you can Google it, Wall, West Bank, Israel. And you can see the construction of this huge, enormous uh, concrete and steel wall that they erected along the West Bank in Jordan, in uh, Israel, in order to keep the Palestinians from coming over and uh, killing them. From the year 2000-2003, as phase one of this wall was being constructed, there were, I think, 73 Palestinian suicide bombings carried out during that time. Once the wall was constru the construction was finished in 2003, from for the same time period, 2003 to 2006, went from 73 suicide bombings down to 12. The wall obviously works. However, that wall is a huge source of contention in peace talks in Israel. And it seems like every time there's a conflict in Israel, the whole world says, Israel, you ought to give peace a chance. And Israel does. And we've seen them acquiescing to uh, demands for years. In 2005, Ariel Sharon had a problem in the Gaza Strip where Hamas was launching uh, rockets over from the Gaza Strip. And so he gave the Gaza Strip back and said, okay, that's going to solve the problem. That didn't work. We've seen all summer long that Israel's fighting with Hezbollah and now talking about giving territory back in order to bring about peace. And so uh, this tour guide, Ari, over in Israel, he says, you know, Perry, there's no doubt that there's going to be a time that this wall comes down. And when it comes down, watch out. You see, now we can assign some context to Ezekiel chapter 38. It says, uh, I will go up to a land without walls or a wall to seize spoil, to carry off plunder, and to turn your hand against a people who were gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, and dwell at the center of the earth. Talking about economic prosperity. Now, we know that Israel is a wealthy nation. But we also know that uh, there's been a long-time joke that there's, a Middle e there's oil in the Middle East, and yet God led his people all the way through this desert to the only place in the desert that doesn't have any oil, that doesn't have any economic prosperity from within. In the 1980s, there was an uh, oil prospector from Texas. name was John Brown. John Brown read an obscure passage in the book of Deuteronomy that talked about a, the, one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Asher, who dipped his foot in oil. And so John Brown from Texas, he's an oil prospector. He goes over to Israel. He says, there's oil in these hills somewhere. And for almost a decade, he searched and searched and searched for oil. At the end of it all, he concluded, I think I was wrong. Maybe God meant olive oil. That's true. Israel is rich in olive oil. However, in 2009, one of the largest natural gas reserves was found within the borders of Israel at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, 5,000 feet at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. They immediately started plumbing it to try and get the natural gas out. As they were doing it, before it was even completed, they found an even bigger natural gas reserve called Leviathan Gas Reserve. The, uh, the Tamar Gas Reserve, the first one, came online in 2013 and started supplying Israel with, uh, with her own natural gas, her own resources. She's able to get electricity from within her walls. 
once this Leviathan gas reserve is online in 2016 or 17, Israel will have enough to not only to provide energy to her own country, but will have enough to start exporting. The U.S. Geological Survey says there is yet more natural gas to be found within Israel and oil. They expect to find oil and more natural gas within Israel. You will come against a nation who has acquired livestock and goods, a nation who is rich economically. And all of a sudden, since 2009, we can assign some context to Ezekiel chapter 38. It goes on to say that the countries around the area will say, Have you come to seize spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry away silver and gold and, and to seize great spoil? In other words, other nations are going to look at this invading horde of Ezekiel chapter 38 and say, You ought not do that. What are you all doing? You ought not do that, but they're not going to lift a finger to do anything to help. Is the stage set for that? Absolutely. You know, in, in, the, in the Bible, as you read end time prophecy, you never see a mention to anything that might possibly refer to the United States. That means a couple, it could mean one of two different things. In the end of time, number one, maybe the United States isn't around. Or number two, and what the stage is set for, is that the United States isn't involved in the Middle East. You see, we've been over there fighting a war for over 10 years and we're sick of it. We want our troops to come home. And we're working to bring our troops home. And now, as there are bigger problems happening in the Middle East with ISIS, we've seen all summer long, and even in the news today, uh, ISIS is causing all kinds of problems, persecuting, genocide, beheadings, all kinds of problems. But the United States is very, very, very reluctant to get involved. And so what we're planning to do is we're going to send uh, guns to terrorists to use against other terrorists so that some terrorists can kill other terrorists, and then the terrorists that are left will have guns. That makes a lot of sense, right? How, how is that going to work out for us? How do you figure that's going to work? Well, I think that there might come a day well, we're just hands off. Did you know that since the inception of Israel in 1940, or rather the re-inception of Israel in 1949, Israel has fought seven major wars. You know how many of those the United States stood alongside her? Zero. We've given some money to Israel. We've supported them economically, but every time there's ever a conflict, we, ought, we always say, Israel, you ought to give peace a chance. And we've never listed, lifted a finger to help her. Ezekiel 38 says nobody's going to help her out. And yet, at the end of it, God is going to win that war for Israel. God is going to intervene, and God's going to do it. Matter of fact, Ezekiel says, On that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish, the birds, the animal, all people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. They will know that I am the Lord. This echoes what Zechariah says in Zechariah 16, that at the end of time there will be a great earthquake. Revelation chapter 16 says, at the end of time there will be a great earthquake, says, a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. Are we living in the end times? I think we can say absolutely. The stage is set. I don't know exactly what the end times is going to look like, but I know that we are closer today than we've ever been before. I know that there are some key things that we can put in context and say, wow, Prophecies of over 2,500 years are being fulfilled within our generations. We're seeing this come before our very eyes. The disciples asked Jesus. Jesus had to talk about the end times. And uh, the disciples said, well, when exactly is this going to happen? And Jesus' reply to them was, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then Jesus went on to say, therefore you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words... God doesn't have to wait for a Psalm 83 war or an Ezekiel 38 war or any other kind of war. He doesn't have to wait on an earthquake. He doesn't. Jesus could come at any time. The time is near. And the question is, are you ready? And I know many of us here, 
We've already accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We've said, God, I can't live this life on my own. I certainly can't go into eternity on my own merit. I accept Jesus as my Savior. Praise God. You're ready. Find somebody who isn't because times is near. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the sunshine. We pray for a good race this afternoon, but we pray that throughout our lives, all things that are happening in our lives, whether they're good or whether they're bad or indifferent, we pray that you will use those events to draw us closer to you. Uh, may we come to know you even more and be, have a burden for people that don't know you. And may we share your love with this, ra- this uh, nation right here within the borders of GNCC. We love you. We look forward to serving you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Have a great race. And I'll see you out there, and if not, I'll see you in three weeks.